0: So we're coming to a close on our covenant series and just wanted to recap a couple of the last sermons just to try to help us keep in mind sort of where we are and what we've sort of gone through a little bit. I won't recap them all, just the last couple. So we've looked at covenant and how God's very nature is one of the things that covenant stems from. That with his nature and his character, that is, that is what we should anchor ourselves in as we think about covenant, that it isn't something secondary, it is primary. Covenants are about love because it's God's nature, right? God's nature is love, so his, the covenants are love. And to participate in them is to be, to be moved forward, to not be sta- static, but to be constantly brought from one glory to another. Covenants impact all aspects of our lives. There's no distinction between sacred and secular. It's all the same. All aspects of our lives should be impacted by this. This is an invitation to constantly participate in everything we do. Covenants are to be passed from generation to generation. It's a continuous movement and there shouldn't be a stopping point. It should always be moving. Even as we move forward, it also moves forward from generation to generation. So, before we dive into the sermon, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I just thank you today that you invite us into covenant with you. I thank you for the opportunity to gather all together, and I just thank you for your being here with us. In your name, amen. So, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to actually start with a book recommendation. Most of the really good things I'm saying are not my ideas at all, so don't... If, if, if I say anything, even if it's not officially a quote, and it sounds really good, it's probably not me. It's, it's this lady. Carmen Joy Imes. She has a book called Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. Um, I've read it two and a half times so far, and uh, every single time I've just really enjoyed it. My father's two and a half times, too. Um, it's a really good book. Um highly recommend it for anybody who's interested. It's specifically written for the church. It's not academic. It's specifically written for the church. Um, she's an associate professor of Old Testament, and so she puts forth stuff and just tries to sort of say, like, why should all of these things that often feel very, like, disconnected not be, but be part of the whole story, and how does it all fit together? So what we're going to look at today is the idea of bearing God's image and name, and how that should matter to us today, even as we move forward. So a good place to start is to ask the question, if we're a priesthood, just as Israel was, what is a priest's function? So if we understand that, then we can ask lots of other questions as we move forward. So a good place to start is just to ask that question, what is a priest? And so for that, we'll start in Exodus 28, and actually look at the high priest. Exodus 28, verses 11 and 12. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in a setting of gold filigree. You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones and remembrances for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear the names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So as Aaron goes in to the holy place, he is constantly wearing... On his shoulders, he's representing the people of Israel. He has the, their names right there. It's in a remembrance. And in the same way, if we look at Exodus 28, verses 28 and 29, And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings, skillfully woven to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breastpiece should not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece on the judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So not only does he wear them on his shoulders, he wears them on his chest. He represents Israel as he goes in to God. It is not just him. He is carrying all of Israel with him as he goes in. And in the same way, Exodus 28, verses 36 to 38 You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, Holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel con- con- consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. So now he wears Holy to the Lord on his forehead. So just as in the same way, when he goes into the holy place, he's representing Israel. When he comes out, he's representing God, right? I mean, that's not any surprise. And so whereas we move in and out, we see the priest. He is both representing Israel to God, and he's representing God to Israel. And that is what a priest does. He functions in the way of representing the people he's called to, to represent them to God. And in the same way, he speaks to the people for God. So the priest is a representative for the people before God and a representative of God before the people. That's functionally what we're interested in, and the idea is, is this is what a priest is. And if that's what we're called to, then we want to think about what does that mean and how do we do that. So a good place to start is the Ten Commandments, which Donna already read for us, but I'll just go back and read a little bit of it just to start, sort of put us in place here. Exodus 20, verses 2 and 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the father, of the children, to the third and fourth generations, of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to those of thousands, of those who love me and keep my commandments." This command can either be broken into one or two commands. Today, we're just going to call it one. And its focus is, who do you worship? That's the question. Who will you bow down to? Who will you represent? And the question always is, is it Yahweh or is it someone else? That's the question to Israel that is being put forward in these two. You can worship a God, but in that culture, you would never have a God you worship without an image and so those are two are just intertwined so here we have the invitation either worship Yahweh or you can choose to be disobedient and you worship these other gods and that's the fundamental root of the start of the, the, of the commandments here. The second command and I'm going to read you um, what Professor Imes the way she translates it and then we'll sort of look at why, is, why does she translate it this way. The way she writes this command is, you must not bear or carry the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain, but Yahweh will not hold guiltless anyone who bears or carries his name in vain. Now that seems weird, because that's not the way we normally talk about it. Usually we talk about it, you shall not take the name of the Lord, God, in vain. Uh, The way the NIV uses it was, you shall not misuse um, the name of the Lord. So to bear or carry, that's interesting, and so why does she even go this direction? Um, next slide, if you would. There we go. That's the one. Okay. So here, here's the... Every single one of my sermons, I, have a slot, uh, I actually have a graph or a chart. I just almost... N- I b- basically never show it to you because I don't know any of you really want to actually look at my graphs and charts. I get super excited about graphs and charts. Today, you have to just deal with it. <laughs> Sorry. So... Um, You'll notice that what happens is the Hebrew word I have sort of listed in the center there, and then what is the likelihood of that pie chart that the word is going to be translated in certain ways. So the most likely use is lift or lifts or lifted. The second likely use is carry, carries, carrying, that type of thing. Bear, bearing, bearing is all the way down to the fourth before you get to what we often translate it as is take or taking. Okay, So we get down to this one to where over 50% of the way this is translated is lift, bury, or carry, and we don't use any of those. And the reason sort of comes down to this, which, just to be clear, anytime I critique or comment on translators, I don't in, in any way envy their jobs. The idea of taking a language, translating it to another, making everybody happy is just insane. And also, there's all this historical... Precedent for this is the way the word's always been translated. So as we learn more, people get upset when you change the word. I can't believe he changed that word. So I in no way, when I say anything about translators, in any way envy their jobs. But here's what happens. When the translators have translated this word for the last couple centuries, they've had a couple of things. They said, Well, this the idea of bearing or carrying the name seems weird. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. We must need to assume something, because how can you bear or carry a name? Names aren't lifted or carried. They're spoken. It must be that maybe the name is lifted on the lips. It's spoken. And so that's what we are supposed to be thinking is that the names are lifted on the lips. That's what people have sort of come to and said, so okay, that's how we get there. So... Professor Imes puts a different look at it and says, well, actually, there is a really good precedent for why we should translate another way, and it's what we started with this morning, right? So Exodus 28, 11, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. He's bearing their names. Exodus 28, 28 and 29, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment on his heart. He bears the names. Exodus 28:36 and 38a, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord, and it shall be on Aaron's forehead. So he bears Yahweh's name, and he bears the Israelites' names. He is bearing their names. He's carrying them as he goes in and out. This is what the priest does. He represents them. He carries the names. Literally carries the names. Which seems a little weird to us. But that's, you know, that's the, the, you know, so this is where she sort of gets to. So at this point, we have a quote from her. We have already noted that most interpreters assume it makes no sense for Israel to carry the name Yahweh, so they look for other possibilities. But right here, in proximity to the name command, is the high priest, set apart to belong to Yahweh, carrying the names of the twelve tribes, The key to understanding the name command is right here. The 12 gemstones indicate that the high priest represents the entire nation before Yahweh. The medallion on his forehead indicates that he is Yahweh's authorized representative to the nations. So he's burying them. So maybe another way to look at this is just to sort of look at how strangely, if you want to call it that, the Bible uses the name. So here we are, and we're about to enter into Israel, uh, um, into the promised land, and God's talking, and he says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. (laughs) So the way we use name isn't maybe the way the Bible uses the name. God can actually put the name into things. That's interesting. And it raises questions about what is the angel of the Lord, but that we're not going to go there. But the idea is, is there is something about the way we think about name that isn't the way the Bible talks about name. There is more to it than that. So if we were, as we were sort of reading through those um, Exodus 28 verses, it, each time it's said that the, the way that should be engraved should be like a signet. And what we, what it's saying is like a signet ring. And, you know, we've all watched enough videos and movies of people who seal things with a wax seal with their signet ring and so they are bearing they're bearing the mark that signet of god on them that's what they carry as they go about that's what the priest is doing he is burying it's, it's an actual physical manifestation of the mark that god puts on those who are his people so Numbers 6, 22 to 27, very familiar section of passage for all of us. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We've all used that. We've even used const- it's a common thing for us to speak here. What's interesting is the next verse. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So by speaking this over someone, you are marking them. They now bear or carry the name. They're marked in a different way than what we, you know, like than what we just think about. There is something that, that happens that is transactional about the experience when you speak this over somebody. Professor Iams puts it this way. Now think back to the dramatic declaration of Exodus 19 when Israel first arrived at Mount Sinai. Their God bestowed titles on his people like treasured possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. As his treasured treasured possession, Israel's vocation, the thing they were born to do is to represent their God to the rest of humanity. They function in priestly ways, mediating between Yahweh and everyone else. They are set apart for his service we can show how this connects to the high priest. He is a visual model of the vocation of the entire nation. So he represents what the nation should look like. I mean, if, you're, if you were told you're to become a race car driver, you'd like to be able to watch, some, if you, especially if you've never done it, you'd like to have some people to watch, to observe. So in the same way, if you're told you're to become a priest, and you're like, I wish I had somebody to watch, Sure, God does that, exactly. He puts a priest right there in front of them and says, hear, watch, observe, learn. This is what you are to be like. This is how you are to carry my name into the nations. That there is something about what the the high priest is doing that is a visual teaching that is observational about how we are to, to live. And it's a theology that is very very strange to us because most of our theology is words but that's not at all how the old testament especially exodus leviticus and numbers sort of functions the theology is hands-on it is there to watch to grasp to see to interact with that is how god communicates theology and it's strange to us because we're so disconnected from it we don't get to walk into the tabernacle and see these things and go well say if i were a priest what would i function like We don't get to see that same thing, and so we lose some of what this means because we just don't live it. Another quote from Professor Imes. Just as the high priest represents Yahweh to them, so they represent Yahweh to the nations. By looking at Aaron, every Israelite is reminded of their calling as a nation. Just as he is set apart for service, holy, so are they, a holy nation. At Sinai, Yahweh claims this nation as his own and releases them to live out their calling. That calling is to bear Yahweh's name above among the nations. That is to represent him well. At Sinai, he warns the people not to bear his name in vain. It can feel hard to be told, you've got to bear this name well. But we sort of do this almost all the time. I remember back in 8th and ninth grade, down here at the King's Court, running from that to the tree that's just behind the, near the Miller's house, we were doing basketball training, and so the coach would have all of us sprint to the tree and back down. And we had to all do it in a certain amount of time. But he would select one person at every single sprint and give them an even shorter time than everybody else and say, you have to finish. Not only does it not count if the whole team doesn't make it back in this amount of time, but one of you has to do it in X number of seconds even faster than everybody else. And you know, part of the way through the practice, the coach selects me and says, you need, you're the guy you got to get up, and I was like, Coach, I can't do it. I'm so tired. And he's like, take your shirt off. Take my shirt off. He's like, you're wearing a Nike shirt that says just do it. Either take the shirt off or just do it. (laughs) And I remember that because there's something about what he just told me. What I represent is important and how I do it. When I bear things, there's a significance to it. We do that all the time, Right? We select, and we think about, and ask ourselves, does this thing, whatever this thing is, in some ways emulate some aspect of a thing I care about? Or vice versa, do the people who they put out as the people they think emulate the thing represent what I want to? We feel this. We see this in, say, sports. You know, the US swim team, a couple, the last, not this last Olympics, but two Olympics ago, I believe, made a big splash, no pun intended, Thanks. Um, Because they, when they weren't swimming, they started causing problems outside of the stadiums. You know, like they were doing things that were inappropriate and they were not representing the US well, and people were really upset about it. And so we recognize that this is just the way things are. We all are either representing or not representing well the things that we think are important. This is just an aspect of the the very nature of, the, of, of life itself. So what are you representing? How well do you represent that organization? Just another couple of verses to just drive home the point that this, this bearing the name thing isn't just, say, stuck in Exodus, and maybe it's not in other places. Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11 are both the Shema, and it's talking about how you'll bear the, the mark on your, your wrist and your forehead. It's a reminder of being faithful to God. They're bearing something, they're carrying something as a reminder of being faithful. Second Chronicles 7, 14, I'll do the first part. If my people who are called by my name, by my name right? Never really maybe put that in context because it's so familiar to us that we sometimes just forget what that means. But we're bearing the name, we're called by that name. Psalm 24, I shall not lift my whole being to another. Lift, same word, right? I'm not lifting. It seems really weird if we just read that and really think about what that means. Again, without this sort of context, there is something about who we are and what we're lifting that's important. We carry the name. We bear the name. So just to tie up these two first commands, Professor Imes puts it this way. The first two commands then are to worship only Yahweh and to represent him well. Together, they echo Yahweh's declaration of the descendants of Jacob in Egypt, so frequently repeated throughout the Old Testament, especially by the prophets. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Jeremiah and Ezekiel repeated this way, formulaic statement so frequently that it becomes shorthand for covenant renewal I am yours, you are mine. Unlike the gods of other nations, Yahweh could not be represented by a carved image. Instead, he was represented by the people to whom he had revealed his name. So we are to represent, I am yours, you are mine. That is the God that we serve. This is who we are called and invited into. Those first two lay the, the groundwork, if you will, for all other things that come. So this can feel very heavy and very almost like works-based at times to sort of like bear the name well. So I'd like to look at this slightly differently and sort of what she mentioned about like how we're image bearers, to look at the image of God, and to look at the tension that is created in what it means to be the image of God. So since we're talking covenant, we'll look at a different covenant and then come back to this one. So image of God, right off the get-go, we are called image of God in the first first chapter, first page. We're told to subdue the earth and have dominion. So we have expectation that we're going to see what looks like ruling, reigning, things like that. That is what we expect to see from these image bearers. Chapter two comes along, and God invites them to name with him, to name the animals. Very reminiscent of what he's done. So he's starting to teach them, teach them what it looks like to be the image of God by doing things with him that teach them how to be images. And so they do. And as they do that, they also learn to start to recognize what isn't good and what is good. And so he's starting to teach them wisdom. He's starting to teach them and mature them. So you get to chapter 3, and we meet this snake, this thing. We're not sure what it is, but it's a snake. So we're feeling pretty good, because Adam and Eve, they already learned where their, rethor- their responsibility is. Animals are to be something that they rule over. They're in charge of them. They have authority over them. But it doesn't go that way. They turn around And they submit to this animal. Now, we've not acknowledged it's more than that, but there is something about that tension that's created. And so here we are, then we're faced with this tension. And God says, okay, so this is what then we have this looking forward. We're going to have um, this tension created between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's what we're expecting. So we're going to see these two things that are going to be playing out as we go through the Bible. Who are the seed of the serpent? Who's the seed of the woman? And then we have the expectation that there's going to be some head crushing going of the seed of the serpent. That's what we're looking for. And so those are the things we're sort of like looking for. So here we are. We have this image of God, and we expect if they're doing it right, they're going to look like a certain way. And if they're not, it's going to be creating a different tension. And that tension, the way I'm going to describe it from here, here on out, is you can either be the image of God, or you can be the image of a beast. Okay? You can either be the image of God, or you can choose to be less than what you were designed to be and so you can be the image of a beast. So Cain and Abel, next story. What's crouching at the door? Sin is crouching at the door. It's crouching like an animal. It's crouching, it's waiting there. It is something external to them and they can either, you know, Cain can either submit to it or he can rule over it. And so he can either choose to be the image of God or he can choose to be less and be something less than what he was designed to be. And that's the tension that's created here. You go to Jacob. Jacob, he's born. The first thing we're told about him is he's grabbing the heel, which is a weird thing to say. You know, you sort of go, okay, all right. Well, there's only three times in Genesis that the heel is used. One time in Genesis 3, one time near the end when Jacob is prophesying over all of the sons of Israel, and he, he describes Dan as a serpent. (laughs) and Jacob. And so you come out going, I mean, they just told me Jacob's supposed to be the great guy, and he's grabbing the heel. What should I be feeling like right now? Is there tension? What's going on here? So we move a little bit farther into the story, and he covers himself in animal skins. Only two times in Genesis that was used. Once when they sin, and God covers them in skins. And two, here. So he covers himself. He dresses up like an animal and deceives with food. Are we image of God or are we choosing to be the image of a beast? We are submitting ourselves to something less when we choose to not image God. And those are the tensions. There is no other. You can't be, you don't get a third choice. You're either imaging this or you're imaging this. There are no other choices. And that's the tension that's created as we move through. You get to Moses and he tries to make what he senses is the, the right decision, and he kills somebody because he recognizes that Israel shouldn't be under submission to this, this power and what they're doing. But he does it in the wrong way. And so he's sent out, and he gets to spend lots of time with flocks and herds, and matured. And guess what? When he goes up on a mountain, he meets with God, and God gives him authority over the snake. And he can pick up that snake and put it down. Because he's been matured, he's been brought into more. Now we recognize that he still fails, and so he doesn't fully fulfill that image of God, but we get tastes, we get senses that that's the case of what we're looking for. We get to Balaam. He knows he's not supposed to be going and doing what he's doing, but he insists on it anyway, because there's a lot of money involved. And the donkey finally has to correct him. Because he's not being the image of God he's called to. So the donkey is smarter than him and says, God keeps saving your life. Stop hitting me. Saul, the first time we meet Saul, we automatically are already starting to worry about him because he can't find the donkeys. He's wandering around here and there, never does find the donkeys. So we're already creating this tension. Is Saul going to be a good king or a bad king? He doesn't seem like he really has his stuff together when it comes to taking care of animals. How's he going to do with people? You get to David, the story of David and Goliath. The first thing, like one of the first parts we're told with David is that he's with the flocks and then he's told he's supposed to go take food. But there's just a weird statement in the middle of it. It says, he makes sure that there's somebody watching the flocks before he leaves. Doesn't need to be there unless, of course, we recognize that there's a statement here that we're building something. He is a good shepherd. He is starting the image out. And so he recognizes that he needs to take care of the flocks. And so he does. And he goes and he faces off against Goliath. But before he does that, he has to explain to to Saul the fact that he already understands his role and his relationship to the the beasts. He's already defeated the bear. He's already defeated the lion. He knows who he is. He's been made to be more. And so when he faced Goliath and Goliath says, I'm gonna feed you to the beasts, David's like, Nah, I don't think so. I know my pace. I know who I am. I know who my maker is. I'm living that out. And David cuts off his head, giving him a nice lethal head wound, reminding us of Genesis 3. And you go forward to Daniel. Daniel is put into a lion's den and live out, lives out the image. He's faithful, and the beasts are subservient to God, and so he's protected. Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, he thinks he's pretty hot stuff. And so he gets to be behaved like a beast, and he eats grass like an ox. And his hair grows like feathers, and his nails like claws, because he becomes a beast. And so we get to Daniel 7, and we're not surprised at that point. If a whole culture defines themselves not as images of God, but as something else, if they are subservient to something else, then you would expect the whole culture to become beast-like, And so when Daniel 7 comes around and we're told, hey, here's a beast, and it it represents kingdoms, we go, sure, yeah. I mean, if all the people in a society decide that they don't want to image their creator, but they're willing to be subservient to something less, we would expect nothing less than that the whole society would be that way. And then we get the Son of Man, and he comes, and he is the image of God, And he defeats all those beasts because he knows his right and authority and he puts them in their place. So when we come to Jesus and he is calling himself son of man and his his default thing, here is the image we've been looking for. He's faithful. He's consistent. He conquers the thing that is behind that beastly nature. And so because of him, then we get to, Paul and others who are saying, put on the image of Christ, be conformed to Christ. You can live out to be the image of God, but only because someone has done it before you. And because he can dwell inside of you, you can be all that he wants you to be. And it's only because of that though. It isn't because of how well you you work hard, it is because Christ lives inside of you that you can finally be image of God and not an image of a beast. So Jesus is the only way that we get true covenantal faithfulness. He is the true image of God. And in the same way, as we look through the Old Testament, we see how Israel's supposed to be faithful priests. But boy, do we meet a a bunch of bad priests. So many unfaithful priests. Every once in a while we get a good one. But so many of them are unfaithful, and sooner or later they all are. And so we meet Jesus, and again, he's the faithful priest. He is the one who fulfills that high priestly role. And Hebrews dives really into that and says this is what the high priest is supposed to look like. Again, he's the faithful, true messianic king because David has promised that there will be one who rules forever. And we get a lot of bad kings in the same way. (laughs) But we finally meet the king who is that true covenantally faithful one. And so all of the covenants come together in culmination in Christ and only through Christ can we be covenantally faithful? So when we say we bear the name, we recognize that on our own we don't bear the name. we don't image well. Through Christ we do. It's only through Christ that we can image well when we can bear the name well. And just to keep this focus on the fact that this is, this is not something that's just stuck to the New Testament or the Old Testament. James 2 through 7. Next slide, Andrew. Did I lose you? Okay. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So James is talking and he's telling the people, like, look, you're being inconsistent. You're, being, you're honoring those who are rich and not taking care of the poor. You're constantly elevating those who have wealth over those who aren't. You blaspheme the honorable name. You're called to something more. Represent the name well. Don't be selective in who you honor and how you take care of people. They all are image bearers. First Peter 4.16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So there's just this constant tension this constant reminder that we represent the name. When Paul is called in Acts 9 and he um, Jesus is talking to Ananias before he sends him he goes you need to go to Saul because he is going to bear my name to the nations. The words he uses Ephesians 1:13, 2 Corinthians 1:22, 2 Timothy 2 and Revelation 2 2, and 3, all talking about sort of being sealed because of the Holy Spirit. There's a seal that's put on us, just reminding us of that signet ring. We've been sealed. We bear. We carry the name, and that is how we represent in, throughout our lives. And to continue on to Revelation, Revelation 7, 2 through 4. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels, who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So we're waiting, Revelation 7, for those to be sealed. Revelation 13. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might not even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So they all bear the name. You either bear the name of one or you bear the name of the other. That's the tension that's been created from the beginning. We bear somebody's name. We represent something. We can be false priests or we can be true priests. We can be true image bearers or we can be less that's the tension that's being put forward, and it continues into Revelation, just again sort of reiterating, covenant faithfulness only comes from one place, and there is something that is less and something that is more. Revelation 14, 1. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb with him, 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So in 7, we were told they're going to be sealed. Finally here, we get to them. They're sealed. They've been named. There's those who now bear the false name and something less, And there's the ones who bear the true name, those who really are image bearers of God, who bear the name well. 14, 11, and 12. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So we've got to keep our faith in Jesus. And there's still actions that are invited. We keep the commandments. That there is something that we do that still images out, that bears out the name. That we don't just stop and say, okay, well, Christ dwells inside of us. Got it. Done. Moving on. No, we, we do something with that. We can image out well, or we can image out poorly, we can bear the name well or we can bear the name poorly. And so just as um, my father sort of talked about you know, a couple weeks ago, there is no distinction between sacred and secular. In all, all that we do, we are called to live and bear that name well in all aspects. And we always remind ourselves, we always have to remind ourselves that we can't do that on our own because it gets very easy to start going, okay, well, I, gotta, I just got to do this but we're still called to do it. There's this tension between the fact that Christ has done, but that doesn't mean that all the work is done. He did all the work that the Father put forward for him to do, but there's still work for us to do. We're not done because Christ is done. He puts it now on into us and he says, through you, because you're my image bearers, you now can image faithfully and you can continue to grow the kingdom and be faithful through that.